Well, howdy, Hootah Thunkers. This is the host of the Hootah Thunkin' Podcast, Zeb, coming at you with episode 120, called The Dyatlov Pass Incident. Before we get into anything, even the recommendation segment, I have an update. Uh, back in December of 2021, I published episode number 88, James Webb Space Telescope, where I talked about the exciting new era of scientific discovery brought about by a massive project taken on by NASA, uh, Canada, and European space agencies. Then I touched back on Webb on episode 94, DART, Webb, and other STEM updates. Well, as I write this episode, I'm watching NASA's live broadcast of the first images collected by the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, by the time you hear this, the images will be made public, and they are. I uh, link to it on the blog. Check it out. You could just Google uh, James Webb Space Telescope images. The broadcast was filled with technical issues, of course. Uh, it's not really surprising. They were, they were coordinating streams all across the world. Uh, but the science was great and the images breathtaking. And they did have some very knowledgeable people on there. They also had some people who had no idea what they were talking about they were, or just <laughs> were nervous. They just kept going, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> but some of the people were, you know, very brilliant. They knew what they were talking about and they explained the images. So you can look up the images and you'll be like, wow, that's pretty. What is that? Um, that's why the broadcast was quite, quite neat. Anyway, check them out. Um, we now have access to the most in-depth images of outer space ever taken, um, starting the day that I record this, the day that I wrote this. So I thought that was neat. Now for the recommendation segment this week, I recommend you watch Vinland Saga on Netflix. I think I've recommended this show before, uh, when it was available on Amazon Video, but only with Japanese dialogue and English subtitles. Now, the show is on Netflix with English-dubbed audio, which is typically, uh, typically appeals to a wider audience over here in the States. The show follows the story of Thorfinn, Thorfinn, a young Viking boy in the 11th century during the time of the Viking occupation of England. Leif Erikson and the Norse's uh, mass conversion to Christianity. Uh, you follow young Thorfinn's journey of vengeance through all that. The young or the show has tons of brutal fight scenes, gore, and complex combat, which is cool. Everyone likes that in an anime, and it, it is animated. But the underlying theme of the entire show is humanity's struggle between violence and pacifism. During this time in history, the Norse world was struggling between two philosophies: rage against the world, go out with a fight, with a bang, you know, uh, die in battle and go to Valhalla, or Embrace peace and live in harmony with the world. I'm not just talking about the religions. I'm talking about the philosophies behind the religions. You talk about Norse, myth Norse mythology or the, the, the Norse religion was all about fighting and, and battling. And that's the true meaning of life as opposed to Christianity, which was peace and love and, and forgiveness. Two very different things and how they barely understood each other. And the show does a wonderful job um, of just talking about that time period which you never really think about you know about the vikings but you never really thought about them being converted to christians and what that might be like for them this show sucked me in with its fantastical fight scenes but kept me watching with the thought-provoking philosophical dialogue so check it out there's more to it than you think now for the main event i'm watching the unexplained with william shatner it's not, it's not a great show but it's not terrible and the first episode is titled evil places they talk about Japan's suicide forest and a couple other spooky places. The main theme is that, oh no, lots of people died here and or were buried here. Uh, it must be haunted. Then a thought occurred to me. I bet almost all places on Earth have had people die on site or near it. So I went 
to mathematics to help. You have about, <laughs> bear with me here. You have about, uh, what's that? 488,648,294,000 square feet of land on earth, roughly. Then you have 110 billion people who have ever died on earth. That's roughly comes out to 4.4. That's the number of square miles or square, sorry, square feet away you are from a spot where someone died, roughly. So you divide the amount of land on earth by the amount of people who've ever died and you get 4.4, roughly. That's 4.4 square feet when you divide those numbers. Of course, that would imply that every death that has ever occurred happened at an equally spread out distance, which is preposterous. Uh, there are some places that humans frequent more than others and Many more people have strolled around the Mediterranean Sea than have visited the summit of Mount Everest, yet those are both equally part of the square feet and total land on Earth. Um, and where people are more likely to be is where more people have died, because as far as we know, every person has and will die here on Earth. But even the idea that someone has died within 4.4 square feet of wherever you are on Earth's land's surface is almost certainly wrong. Doesn't that mean that all the lava fields, icy mountain peaks, de deserts, and all the other inhospitable places just decrease the average distance that someone has died near you? If you're near like a major city, let's say you're near New York, could you imagine how many people have died right where you're standing right now? Or if you're just in a, in a, in a pleasant town that's a decent climate, so many people have died there. So it's probably a lot smaller than 4.4. Think about it. That uh, 488 billion square feet number of land on earth would be noticeably smaller if we took out all the inhospitable places that would decrease that 4.4 square feet number and again this is all based on the idea that all deaths happen equally far away from each other which they almost certainly have not wow what a tangent i'm going on but i'm, I'm bear with me here what i'm getting at is if you are currently in a relatively pleasant environment right now, then you are probably standing, sitting, or laying in the exact spot where someone has died. And that is all the time, no matter where you go. Take another step to your left. Someone died there. Go for a jog. Someone died every step you took. So the notion that a place becomes more haunted the more people who die there is founded in paranoid, crappy thinking. So I thought that was funny about the, the haunted places. And that is going to be the tone of this episode because there's a lot of haunted stuff about the Diatlov Pass incident. If that were the case, then everywhere is haunted all the time and only becomes more haunted the more humans are born and eventually die on this planet. So now, one could make the argument that some deaths are more evil or tragic than others, but I would argue all deaths are tragic and what is evil? Um... That's not something that can be defined in a tangible way. It is a co concept of morality. So anyway, after going through all that and just sort of having my little tiff against William Shatner's Unexplained, um, after realizing the show got me to think that deeply about it, I thought, why not do an episode on one of the subjects that I did find quite interesting and I'd never heard of before? So this episode of Who to Thunk It, <laughs> after that <laughs> long intro, is about the Dyatlov Pass in incident. A lot of Russian exp uh, uh, Russian words that we have to try to pronounce. A topic covered in episode one of William Shatner's Unexplained. So if you watch that first episode, this is on there. The Dyatlov Pass incident is about nine hikers in the Soviet Union of Russia that tragically and mysteriously died in the Ural Mountains in February of 1959. 
The group was made up of a bunch of students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and the man leading the trek uh, was 23-year-old hiker named Igor Alexakajevic Dyatlov. We're going to call him Dyatlov. Before, <laughs> before he left, Dyatlov had told his sports club that he and his team would send them a telegram as soon as they returned. Sometime during the beginning of their journey, they made camp on the eastern slope of Kolat Siakal. Uh, Siakal. Kolat Siakal. We'll get to, into that in a bit. Uh, this is just sort of like the overview. For no obvious reason, the group decided to cut their way out of their tents and run away from their campsite in the middle of the night. Remember, this was the northern Ural Mountains in Soviet Russia. It was sub-zero temperatures. And the group was still in their pajamas. The Soviets launched an incident investigation and were shocked to find that only six out of nine that were that went on the journey had died from hypothermia. The other three students had perished from some sort of physical trauma. One of the victims died from a massive skull fracture. Two had severe physical trauma to the chest. Another victim did have a small crack in his skull as well. Four of the bodies were found lying in a creek of running water in like a ravine, still snow, still frozen, not frozen by the Russian winter because where it was. Three of the bodies found in the creek had soft tissue damage, uh, specifically to the head and face, like it was deliberate. Two bodies had missing eyes. One body was missing its tongue. One victim had no eyebrows. Some of these victims looked as if they had been hit by a speeding motor vehicle. It looked like a car crash in the middle of the mountains where there's no cars. One of the most notable quotes from the Soviet's investigation was that these trekkers died from, quote, a compelling natural force which is very open-ended, and what the heck does that mean? It's a bureaucrat for, we don't know what happened. This is, of course, this, of course, uh, has led to many theories coming out, some more outlandish than others. Over the decades, people have guessed that animals, animal attacks, hypothermia, an avalanche, catabatic winds, infrasound, or infrasound-induced panic, military involvement, or some combination of these factors. Others have thought yetis, satanic rituals, of course, and aliens are to blame. So they've come up with all sorts of things for this. Now, the group did keep journals and numerous cameras. You can look at the images on the blog. I have a, a link to it. These journals and images have allowed the amateur sleuths of the world to piece together the trek to Otorten a little bit better than the Soviet investigation that seemed to only want a quick cover-up. So that was their main goal. They're trying to get to Otorten, um, but they didn't make it there. On February 1st, the group set out an un, on an unnamed pass to Otorten. Since this incident, the pass has been deemed the Dyatlov Pass. The nine hikers, or trekkers, willingly set out into this cold, harsh weather toward the base of Otorten Mountain. They were hit hard by blinding snowstorms, it's Soviet Russia. The intensity of these storms was only amplified by the narrow valley pass, the bad weather being sort of like funneled toward them. Toward them. I now live in a, in a valley, and, and that's what happens. Wind gets kind of harsh down in here. The visibility was so sparse that the group lost their sense of direction. Instead of uh, heading towards Otorten Mountain, uh, they had deviated to the west. Of course, off course, off course, they found themselves on the slope of a different mountain. Kolat Sakisiakal, which means dead mountain in the native Mansi language. So <laughs> eh, it just gets creepier and creepier. The mountain they ended up going off course and, and finding was called Dead Mountain. Don't go there. For an unknown reason, Dyatlov chose to make camp on this mountain's slope, which 
Uh, many have questioned the choice to camp on this slope because it's inherently more difficult to camp on a slope. Nearby was flat ground with tree cover, a perfect camping site. So why did they choose the more difficult camping site? I don't know. Uh, there are theories, like they didn't want to lose the altitude they had gained, they wanted to practice camping on a slope, or perhaps the visibility was so bad they didn't know where else to go, they just camped where they were. Regardless of the reasoning, this campsite would be their grave. None would make it out. I have lots of different uh, images on the blog to tell you like how this all happened, where it happened. Now, after about 20 days with no word from Dyatlov, a search party was made of his buddies and everyone and volunteers, and they deployed. They found the campsite, but none of their friends. That's when the military and cops got involved. With their investigation, one of the first observations made by officials was that even though this group was relatively experienced in trekking across Russia's terrain, they had chosen a very difficult path. Um, so, you know, they expected the worst, especially when they considered the amount of time since they went missing 20 days in far below freezing temperatures. The official search and rescue party was looking for bodies, not living people. They expected an open shut case. Uh, we know they found bodies, but it was the state that they were in that made this more complicated. And I go in more depth in that overview here. Let's, let's break it down. Uh, they found the tent completely destroyed and were able to prove uh, that it had been cut from the inside with many of the hikers' shoes still left inside the tent. So a lot of them were barefoot. There were about nine sets of footprints leading from the camp to the edge of the nearby woods. Okay, makes sense, nine of them. And the woods is about one mile from camp in the snow. These footprints were made with bare feet socks only feet or some of them had just like one shoe on at the forest edge under a large cedar the investigators found the remains of a small fire and f the first two bodies yuri krivonestanko 23 and yuri doroshenko 21 despite temperatures of negative 13 to negative 22 degrees fahrenheit on the night of their deaths, that's really cold. That is really cold. Just to give a reference, negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit is the same as negative 40 degrees Celsius. So anybody who goes by Celsius, you know, this is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. It's cold. Both men's bodies were found shoeless and wearing only underwear. This is when things began to point towards madness. You find guys out there just in their underwear, no shoes, and they're a mile away from camp. What is happening? Then they found the next three bodies. They found the leader of the group, Dyatlov, uh, Zineda Kolmogorova, 22 years old, and Rustem Solobodin, 23 years old. I don't know if these are <laughs> male or female. I can't tell because of the names. But they there's three of them now. They appear to have died on their way back to camp from the cedar tree where the other Yuris were at. And I have images of all these bodies here. They're not too gruesome because it's black and white and grainy and it's just snow. So a lot of like snowed bodies. The five bodies died. These five bodies died from hypothermia. The investigators admitted the placement of their bodies was odd and the circumstances really weird in which they were found. But the cause of death was typical hypothermia. Russia went hiking didn't make it. But what about the circumstances? Let's look at those. Doroshenko's body was a brownish purple color, and he had gray foam and liquid coming from his mouth. No idea. No other explanation on that. This is something they noted. Nobody's ever come up with why. The two bodies found under the cedar tree had their hands scraped so badly that the skin was gone from their palms. The branches in the tree above them were ripped uh, from the tree. 
This leads many to think that they were trying to climb the tree fanatically, uh, or possibly something was up in the tree and broke them. I don't know. Shlodobodin's head was battered, similar to someone who had hit their head from a fall, but like many times. That's their skull fractures. Kolmogorova had a rod-shaped bruise on her side. And why were they all underdressed, wearing clothes that didn't necessarily belong to them? Not only were they wearing their pajamas or their underwear, some of them wearing shirts that belonged to someone else. This led investigators to believe that the group left in hurry. They were really freaking out. And everything else really points to, like, they didn't leave camp in normal state of mind. They weren't inexperienced. They knew how dangerous the cold was. They're Russians. And yet something made them flee into the freezing cold in their underwear and without shoes. Almost certain death at that point. Months later, the other four bodies were found, and that's when things really got crazy. The other four were found buried in the snow down in the ravine, about 250 feet farther into the woods than the cedar tree where the other where the Yuris were found. This ravine is now known as the Dyatlov Pass Den. That Dyatlov guy, he's just the leader, got everyone killed, and everything's named after him. Sorry, sidetrack. One of the hikers by the name of Nikolai Fibu Brigonolis. Uh, that doesn't sound very Russian. Nikolai does, but the other ones don't. Anyway, uh, Nikolai was age 23, and he had severe skull damage right before his death. Lyudmila uh, Dubnina, Dubnina, age 20, and Semyon Zolotaryov, uh, age 38, he'd be the oldest, had injuries to their chests and were comparable to being hit by a car. The most terrifying body was poor Dubnina. Uh, she was missing her tongue, eyes, and part of her lips. Entire parts of her facial tissue and skull were missing, never to be found. So she seemed to have the most brutal. I have a picture of her. It's not, like I said, I have a picture of these bodies, which is is macabre and, and, and kind of sad. But also we're learning about it. And these aren't terrible, brutal images. You know, they're, they're, they're low quality. And they're black and white, so you don't see the blood. So I would say that it's okay to see these. Um, maybe not a small child, but this wouldn't freak out most people, I don't think. The bodies found in the den told a more complex story than those found nearer the camp. Alexander Kolovatov, age 24, was in the den, yet he seemed to not suffer any of the wounds found on the others in the den. There was evidence to suggest that the victims in the den died at different times because clothing was stripped from those who died first. Almost like, okay, he doesn't need it, I'll take it. Uh... Krivonishenko's wool pants uh, were used to wrap Dubanina's foot and Zolotoryov's body had Dubanina's fur coat and hat on it at the time of death. So then there were the fact that those there was trace amounts of harmful radiation on their clothing as well. So it's kind of weird what the heck is going on here. They died at different times. It looks like there was a, a tragic story of survival. Uh, Dubanina, she's the one with the, the really messed up face, missing tongue, missing eyes, and stuff like that. So, And now they're, they have radiation. Who knows where that came from? It is the Soviet Union. Uh, radiation. The officials tasked with providing an explanation, um, the Soviets, just sort of gave a vague answer. Suggested it was the hiker's fault for not understanding the climate they were in. But they were exp- they were experienced hikers. That shouldn't have, <laughs> that shouldn't have happened. It must have been something else. 
Some Russian citizens thought maybe the local Mansi tribesmen attacked the group, but that didn't stick for long. The Mansis are a peaceful group, and there was no evidence that the other people had attacked them. There's no there's no evidence that it was man-on-man attacking. No additional footprints, and the force needed to cause some of these, these injuries exceeded what a human could inflict, could inflict on another human, other than you know having a car or throwing him down a cliff. They thought maybe an avalanche was to blame. Perhaps the loud noise that precedes an avalanche was what caused the group to flee in panic from their camp, and an avalanche would be enough force to cause some of the horrific injuries. But there was no evidence of an avalanche, no debris, no broken trees. No avalanches were recorded in that area before or after the Diatolov Pass incident. So unlikely. Um, you can pick or poke holes in these, but I don't know. It seems questionable. I have a picture of the Mansi people here, the local people, and they seem really cool. Not what you... When you think of Russians, you think of Putin and, and, and white dudes who have weird accents and, and wear tracksuits. These are Mansi people. These are native people. They don't look like what you would think of as like a Soviet. So that's who was living there. So what theories have been proposed in the decades since the incident in 1959? Some think that hypothermia is to blame for the lack of clothing on the victims. Hypothermia decreases critical thinking in the victim. And in many cases, um, they think that they're burning hot when really they're freezing to death. So that happens as well. But why would they flee from their warm tent in the first place, though? The injuries on the bodies in the ravine are from a terrible fall into the same ravine. That was another theory as well. Perhaps there was an argument that got out of hand. There was a bit of romantic love quarrel going on in the group, they, they thought. Uh, but many of the group's friends said that they got along well. Plus, we already said the damage done to some of the bodies exceeded what another human could inflict. So, I don't know. That's when people started to suggest a mank or a Russian yeti was to blame. Now, of course, if this was a, a, fictition, a fictitious story... It would be a Yeti. It makes sense. Beat everybody up, scared the crap out of them. It's a great horror story. But this is real life. Yetis or Manx are largely considered to not be real and more like folklore. But in the folklore, creatures are said to be insanely strong and savage. This is why some conspiracy theorists, the Yeti conspiracy theorists, think the Manx is to blame. I would argue that the missing tissue from Dubanina's face... Um, could have been done by a small scavenger animal that does exist, or even the running water that her face was found in. So they think, you know, maybe this mank, this yeti uh, that the Mansis talk about, the mank may have, you know, savagery of his beating them and then ripping body parts off. So um, I'm going to say no. There's very natural reasons why that might happen. Uh, scavenger animals or decay. I have some pictures of the supposed pictures of the Manka footprint, but like I said, I don't believe that's real. Uh, it could be. That'd be neat, uh, but no. Others think it was the result of some top-secret Soviet radiation weapon. People thought this would explain the radioactive clothing and the fact that their funerals, at the funerals, the corpses had a slightly orange withered cast to, like, their skin. But if they died from radiation, there would have been more radiation found than just some trace amounts on some of their clothing. And the orange skin was because the bodies had partially mummified from the cold. This is a common thing found in a lot of people who die from this way. Similar orange skin is found on victims from other hypothermic deaths in, on hikes all the time up in Mount Everest and stuff like that. Now, here I just took a, a, a decent portion from the website allthingsinteresting.com because they said it better than I could. The secret weapon explanation is popular because it is partially supported by the testimony of another hiking group. One camping 50 kilometers from the Dyatlov Pass team on the same night. This other group spoke of strange orange orbs 
floating in the sky around Kilot Saikul, that um, the Death Mountain. A site proponents of this theory interpret as distant explosions. The hypothesis goes that the sound of the weapon drove the hikers from their tents in a panic. Half-clothed, the first group died of hypothermia while attempting to take shelter from the blast while waiting near the tree line. The second group, having seen the first group freeze, determined to go back for their belongings but fell victim to hypothermia too. While the third group got caught in a fresh blast further into the forest and died from their injuries. Lev Inov, in Ivanov, Lev Ivanov, the chief investigator of the Dyatlov Pass incident, said, quote, I suspect I suspected at the time and am almost sure now that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's death when he was interviewed by a small Kazakh um, newspaper in 1990. Censorship and secrecy of the USSR forced him to abandon this line of inquiry. And they did do that. They shut a lot of things down. Um, other explanations include drug testing that caused violent behavior in the hikers and an unusual weather event known as infrasound caused by particular uh, wind patterns that can lead to panic attacks in humans because of the low frequency sound waves create a kind of earthquake inside the body. In the end, Hikers' deaths were officially attributed to a, quote, a compelling natural force, and the case was closed. So, interesting. Uh, the infrasound th theory that it made them go insane, some kind of, like, inner e inner earthquake, that's what uh, William Shatner was talking about on his Unexplained on Netflix. Um, that's what he went with. While writing this episode, I, too, thought that maybe drug use was to blame, maybe. Uh, they may have gotten all hopped up on psychedelics and some uppers and then run out in the tent in a blind panic and everything else just came to pass. I don't know. The Russian government decided to launch another investigation in 2019. Pretty recent. Their conclusion was that it was either an avalanche, snow slab slide, or a hurricane. <laughs> Ultimately, the most recent investigation shined no more light on the incident other than that, for whatever reason, the Russian government was willing to spend more money on to figure this thing out, which, which is weird. <laughs> I don't know. In the end, the only ones who will know what happened that night are the people who perished in the Dyatlov Pass. A memorial was erected with pictures of each of the hikers. So check into it. I thought it was interesting. Look at the blog. Lots of good pictures on here. Like I said, the most horrifying one is probably the last one. And thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Hope you tune in next week. This was episode 120. Catch you later.